Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ngā mihi mō te Welcome back to Beyond Consultation. I'm your host, Paul McGregor, and yeah, I'm really excited because as I record this, the podcast is finally live and out there, and we've got listeners from all over the world. We've got the United States topping the list, we've got the UK, Ireland, Egypt, Qatar, Germany, Denmark, South Africa, Australia, and of course, New Zealand, where I'm from which is just awesome, and I would love to hear from you. So one of the ways you can do that is if you go to anchor.fm slash beyondconsultation, that's one word, and there's a big message button at the top of the page, and you can share your feedback through that. You can record a little message to say hi, or just let me know how you found the show, or you might want to ask a question, something that you're struggling with, that we could then put to a future guest. And the first person who does that is going to get a little gift from us just to say thanks. Okay, but on to today's episode. We've got somebody on the show who founded an organization called Shift, which co-designs well-being solutions with young women. She's also got experience in local government and now in central government with Sport New Zealand. So she's got a really interesting perspective from different points of view about how to go beyond consultation. I first met her about six years ago. We were both part of a program with Lifehack, which was looking at how to improve the systems that enable young people to have good lives. And she had this tiny seed of an idea about how she might help young women in Wellington to get active. We explore the story of how she started Shift and what it's like when you put co-design right at the center of how an organization works. And we talk about the difference between co-designing with adults versus young people. If you're in a work environment where it feels like you don't really have the permission to innovate or go beyond consultation, we look at a really good case study of how Sport New Zealand got a program up and running that's called the Innovations for Young Women Design Challenge, which for a funder is a really different way of supporting a community to try out new ideas. And look, we also talk a little bit about how to set up a group co-design situation for success. So we cover quite a lot in this episode. You're really going to enjoy please give a big warm welcome to Fran McEwen. One of the ways of introducing you, Fran, is that you're absolutely mad about running. What makes you want to get up in the morning and do one of those ultra, super, duper, hyper marathons? I don't wake up in the morning and want to do them. That would be one thing. (laughs) I wake up in the morning and don't want to get out of bed and especially in winter turn my like electric blanket back on and like put the pillow over my head so I'm definitely not a morning person I honestly think what makes me want to run ultras is there's a couple of things it really aligns with my kind of bipolar person like my bipolar and my my personality around that in the sense that when I'm manic I've got a lot of energy and I'm all in And all in often means all in and the most challenging, biggest thing that you can think of. So I would Mm. never be like, oh, I'm going to go for a three kilometer run. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go for a hundred kilometer run. So it feels (laughs) quite natural to me to set quite ridiculous and out there 
goals. So mm. it just, it's very natural for me to just want to do, like nothing's ever enough. There's always more. You can always do more, more, more kind of thing, which I think really aligns with um, who I am and innate in who I am is the fact that I experienced bipolar. And mm. that to me means that this just feels very natural to go to go all out. And I think that sometimes the amount of energy I have is I'm able to support my mental health and to sleep well when I burn that energy. And a great way to do that is through physical activity. And mm. I guess running takes me into, that's my dog barking. She's my running partner. G'day, Ollie. Her name's Ollie. <laughs> yeah, it, it, running takes me off the streets and into the trails and into nature. And we also know that that's really good for our mental health and well-being too. Mm. So you can go places that you can't go in a car. And I love that about running. So. <laughs> You talked before about, you know, you experience being bipolar and, and you go all in on stuff. So how else does that show up in your working life? It shows up a lot in shift. It feels like I'm both a creative sort of visionary innovator person at the same time as being very structured and process driven. So I have these two quite strange mm. things. So I will create all these like, yeah, let's come up with a new program idea and let's run a fundraiser at the same time. And let's also start doing this thing. And while I'm doing that, I'll start a running club. And um, why don't we do a shop? So like, I'll come up with 50 ideas of things that need to be done or problems that we need to solve. And then you're kind of, you're leaving the other people that you're working with to kind of almost pick up the pieces or make all of those things happen. And mm. I guess over time they kind of learned to say, um, well, how about we just do one of those things, you know? And so then I'd be like, oh, right. So then we created a parking lot and we would put lots of things in the parking lot. So it would it'll often show up in the amount of things I try to take on, both in a work context as well as in my personal life. So mm. it's just cramming too many things into um, a short space of time and it impacts others, which I think has been the big lesson for me. And that's not, that's not fear on other people around you. So it's been a big lesson. Mm. Okay. And then, yeah, the other way to introduce you, Fran, is you're like staunchly proud of Upper Hutt. So tell us about your favourite place. I'm staunchly proud of being from Upper Hutt because I hear people um, putting down their hometowns and Upper Hutt's, you know, sometimes maybe has a reputation for not being the most wonderful place on earth. But where you're from and whether that's you know might be different like in a Maori context it's what shapes you and makes you right so you know the people around you but the place that you come from I've tried to leave up a number of times I lived in Australia for five years and I did the whole like go and live in London thing and I just am always drawn back to it and as I've got older I've just realized how much I love being so close to the hills and so close to green space and that mm. it's um my memories and my childhood and my upbringing that has made me been part of making me who I am so I'm just really proud to be from the place that I'm from and that's up a heart. Mm. I think that's quite a common experience I almost had almost a bit of shame about where I was from I'm from Christchurch and there's a certain kind of Christchurch way of thinking about the world and I yeah I remember for a while I just wouldn't tell people where I was from or and then eventually you have some experiences that help you to get over that and then you realize the good parts about where you grew up in. So you and I first met about five or six years ago we were both part of a program with Lifehack which was a nationwide systems innovation program trying to improve the lives of young people and you came into the program that I was part of 
with this idea to do something around physical activity with young people in Wellington. And then the idea kind of morphed um, into something much bigger than that, into what is shift now. But can you take us back to the start and the original idea you had? Sure. So I think the first thing to say is that I dropped out of school at 16 and had had a pretty pretty difficult teenage years, like a lot of young people do. And I realized as I started my working life in like libraries and community centers that I really connected with young people and that I had a very deep empathy for the challenges that they were experiencing. And I always felt drawn to like the naughty ones, you know, because <laughs> I could relate to things that they would talk about. And so I started doing more kind of informal youth work through community centers and libraries as I got into my 20s. And I created a program in, in Adelaide out of the library there, working with teenage girls from the local high school around their they were kind of pretty much at that point of either getting expelled from school or wanting to leave school at 15 and 16. Mm. And so it's like, how can we create a program that sort of looks at um, their future sort of career or transitioning into other types of education or employment? So I guess really early on, so that was sort of almost 10 years before, you know, before shift became a thing, there was this deep want to work with young women to try and sort of support their well-being. So it comes from, it's been around this idea of, of teenage girls or young people or youth development for a really long time. So I guess when I got to, so I was working at Wellington City Council when I participated in the Flourishing Fellowship through Lifehack. And because I was working in parks, sport and recreation by that stage, I guess I was thinking about how can I merge my professional work, which was around community health and well-being from a park, sport and recreation perspective and my love of young women. And so how could I merge those together to have some sort of synergy to turn into some sort of program or prototype? And so I came to, you know, the, the, the Flourishing Fellowship with this idea that there was a drop-off in participation for young women. I was working in the space. Something in the system hadn't been working for a long time and young women were not participating as much in organized sport. The world was changing, young people's lives were changing. We've seen an increase in, you know, in, in well-being challenges, mental health for young women, young people. And so it was kind of all of these problems going on and then this potential of like my own love of physical activity and running. So we're seeing that as one way that you could contribute towards improved well-being. So I guess I came to the Flourishing Fellowship with all these ideas bubbling away and knowing that there was something there, but not really knowing uh, what it was going to be or how it was going to turn into something, I guess. Mm, right. So you, you had, from your own experiences, you em could empathize with what was, what was going on for young women. Then you had your professional life, which was looking at parks, recreation, and how to use physical spaces. And then you, just, you wanted to combine those two. What was the process for you for filtering through all the different ideas you have? As somebody, you, know, you mentioned your bipolar, you got heaps and heaps of ideas. So how did you go from just having lots of ideas to actually getting started? So I think, you know, the support that I got from Lifehack was around being able to think more about, about systems thinking, about co-design, about what wellbeing was, about young So a lot of tools in the toolbox to help me through that thinking process. So that was, that was one thing that happened. And I just say the Lifehack HQ website is an amazing place where those tool, tools still exist for people to go and look at. And at the same time, you know, I learned about prototyping and just starting really small and trying some things and being okay with failing. So just some different mental models and ways of mindsets that I could have. So it was almost like, well, we know this is a challenge. 
we know that there's this idea of co-design. So if you go and talk to the young people about their experiences and then you try something and it's really small and it can fail or be really successful, then that's mm. a great way of learning. So basically that's what happened with Shift. We accessed a small amount of funding. I think in the first year we had $60,000 of funding. That was back in mm. 2016. And we employed Chloe, who's still part of the Shift Foundation. She was a youth worker that we employed. And she started by going and meeting with small groups of young women at Wellington secondary schools and talking to them about you know, physical activity, um, what they might want to do more of, why PE and sport wasn't meeting their needs. So just really trying to understand the mm. challenge from a human perspective. Starting with the process of listening, basically. You know, so one of the ways that I often demonstrate that is I say to people when they're like, oh, it's really growing. And I'm like, yeah, so $60,000 was our annual kind of budget in 2016. And I think this last financial year was 450000 and we've gone from being just in Wellington City to being in six cities across the Wellington region. We've gone from having one shift coordinator to having nine shift coordinators. Not that scale means greater impact, right? Because sometimes one person working really deeply with 10 young people can be the greatest impact on earth. So it's not saying that scale isn't necessarily equates to impact, but we've scaled and I guess in a sad way we've scaled because the demand is so great that there's not mm. enough free holistic opportunities for young women to engage with that are fun, free, inclusive. Yeah. Mm. We have a case study that we published called Shift the Trend and in that we sort of like the first thing, you know, the, the first comes like it's empathy and listening. You can't do anything around impact or creating programs or co-designing programs until you really understand the audience that you're wanting to work with and the problems that you're trying to solve. So um, I think too, the other thing to add there is that's when we very quickly realized that the, a physical activity solution wasn't going to be the solution. So we right. couldn't just have lots of yoga and running classes, right? That wasn't going to work because mm -hmm. there were so many other challenges around um, stress and anxiety, um, mental health, body confidence, you know, all these kind of this, these different things going on for individual young women. And if we didn't take a holistic approach to their well-being and their needs, then physical activity was never going to be the only or the right solution. So shift pretty quickly moved from being a physical activity prototype to being a well-being initiative that took a much more holistic approach to the needs of, of young women. Mm. So there's a couple of things in there I'd love to tease out a little bit more. One is, you know, you talk about this concept of co-design and we hear in our work, a lot of people wanting to do that, but asking this question of, oh, am I doing it right? What would you say to people who are struggling with that? I would say that there's not really a right way, like the, the, the different processes or materials that you can use to do it can be so varied and the conversations that you can have with humans can be really varied. But the, I guess the right thing to do is go into it with the intention that you don't know what the solution is from the very starting point. And that it's only through working with your skills and then the users that, you know, the young people or the young women or the whoever is in the room with you. It's only together when you work through a whole lot of questions and ideas and thoughts and you go off on all sorts of random tangents that you can really create something that is, I guess, authentically co-designed between all of the people in the room. So that's really the only rule is that, in my mind, is that you go in with a really open mind, open heart, really willing to listen um, and just work through. It's, 
it never goes where you, you know, if you go in thinking um, the answer is X and the answer mm. is, and that something comes up is Y, you've just got, yeah, you can't go in with that predetermined mm. idea that, that you know anything. So I think if you can have that, that willingness and that openness, and it is really challenging. Like one of the things I guess we've found is that often with funding or with, you know, criteria, people sort of have already said, this is what we want. This is the outcome mm. that we want to see. And so you might go to a young person and say, um, what do you want to do? And they say, well, we want to create a roller coaster. And you say, well, sorry, you have to create a kayak. Like, it's almost like they just, you know, we can't do that. We have to have the space to go, actually, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And then together you come up with with an idea. It just can't be um, predetermined. And when it is, it never works. And we've had lots of um, examples of that with shifts, especially in the early days when we were still learning about co-design. Um, we would still come up with ideas for programs having not spoken to young women and they would be mm. the least successful ones. So we learned kind of, I guess, the hard way, the real way. Do you think there's anything different about co-designing with young people as opposed to adults? It's a really great question. So probably answering it like personally, it wouldn't really change because I feel like I'm pretty authentic regardless of who I'm standing in front of and would take a very mm. similar approach. Potentially I might use different language, but that's because I've experienced both worlds of working with young people and working with adults. I think if you were somebody that's had lots of experience working with adults and then you went to work with young people, you would want to think a bit more about their experience or how they're feeling coming into the room. You know, they might not have as much yeah. life experience. They might be a bit nervous. Um, do they have friends? Is there food? Um, what language are you using? Is it inclusive? How do you open the session? Like, you know, making sure people come in and feel like they're in a comfortable environment. I mean, there are things that you should just do that with all humans. But I think for young people, you really need to think about just those extra things that will make a difference for their comfort level and their enjoyment of the experience. Mm. Yeah, I guess as we get older, we just get more used to meetings and events and just having to speak up if, if we're required to. But the other thing you talked about was this idea of well-being. And so you move from your, your work with Shift being about getting young women physically active to being a bit more holistic. I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about well-being in New Zealand at the moment. What are your thoughts on, on whether that's a buzzword or something more meaningful? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting, hasn't it? The, the the growth, the use of that word. So when I feel like in 2015 and 16 with Lifehack and we started talking about it, it felt like it wasn't the language of the time. It was becoming more of the language. But you felt I did actually feel like I had to constantly explain what well-being was. When we said, oh, shifters around improving the well-being of young women, they'd be like, what does that mean? Whereas now you would never have to explain it. Um, mm. So no, I don't think, I think maybe the term is a buzzword, but the concept of a person having multiple elements to them or having their own perception of what makes them well or happiness, whatever language you want to use, is ancient. You know, you think about, <laughs> I mean, even, you know, we often use um, Mason, so Mason juries, Te Whare thinking about the, you know, the four pillars of the whare or the, you know, that you need these, all of these components to be well or to be balanced, to have good life, whatever that means. Whatever that means is different for everybody. And I'm sure if you look back at indigenous worldviews, it's probably, this is probably a common philosophy or approach for, for thousands of years. So I certainly don't think it's like a flash in the pan thing. I think maybe the term well-being is a bit of a buzz at the moment, but the concept that you can't just work on one part of yourself or that you're mm. 
split up into different pieces. Um, no, you really need to think about all of those things in order to be well. Yeah. So it might, it might have a different label in 10, 15, 20 years time, but the concept might be the same. Yeah. And for people who are listening, who haven't heard about Te Whare Tapu Whaa, we'll um, pop a link in the show notes for today's show. And one other thing I'm really interested in with Shift is, you know, you're an organization that has just put co-design like right at the heart of how you do everything. But then Fran, you also work for Sport New Zealand, a government agency. You've previously worked in local government. Like how does that make your everyday life really different in an organization when that is like one of your core pillars? It's very challenging. <laughs> I feel, and I feel very grateful to have almost be able to compartmentalize my life into my volunteer work as the CEO of the Shift Foundation, where I can be very experimental and agile and innovative. And that feels like another world. And then also contribute to, I guess, greater system change by being in a more of an influencing or leadership role inside uh, in the past local government and now central government with Sport New Zealand. And I think it's important that it takes, it takes both, right? You need on the ground movers and shakers and shifters to change stuff and, and sort of advocate up to, up to government. And, you know, and then you also need people in government that are advocating different ways and putting people first and, and embracing innovation and doing things differently inside government. And I mean, there are lots of great examples of that too. And um, so mm. it feels like, it's just a balance of walking both worlds and trying uh, not to get too frustrated at the, you know, the pace of change um, is very different in, in the community um, compared to government. And um, yeah, that's been a big learning experience for me. Uh, but mm. when you have little wins, when you start to see language and, and ideas changing and, and different activities or funds or things coming out of central government that are different, you start, you get a bit excited that maybe there is these, you know, there's these incremental um, changes. I feel very privileged to be part of um, both worlds and trying to um, influence change in, in both worlds. Mm. So, you, you know, we're talking about Sport NZ and trying to make change within that government sector and starting small. One example of that, we've been working with Sporting Z on the Innovations for Young Women Design Challenge. So like, that's an example, I guess, of what you're talking about, of trying to compartmentalize community-led innovation and, and put some boundaries around it so that you can feel safe to fail within a certain um, context. Can you tell us a bit more about you know, what was it that led to that approach being taken in that particular context? Um, I think that the organisation was open to doing things differently on the back of launching the Women and Girls Strategy, which is a you know, cross-government strategy, but that there was, you know, funding available for a priority group that are less active, and that's young women. <laughs> and in order to it's that old thing of if you keep doing what you've always done, you keep getting what you've always got. And so we haven't been able to shift the participation levels of young women. So something has to be done differently. So maybe that is funding different organizations and maybe that is thinking broader than organized sport. So play active recreation and sport. And so in order to do that, you need to think differently about how do you distribute the money? Who do you distribute it to? And um, there was just a few of us, I guess, that thought it was a, a good idea to try something a bit different and like you say within a within a boundary that you could you could test how it went you knew you could have a positive impact on the, the groups or the teams that were involved with the challenge 
but you could also say to them, this is the first time we've done this. This is a prototype. You're part of this prototype. We welcome your feedback. Yeah. And you learn what goes really well and then what doesn't go so well. And then you can iterate and improve as you, as you go forward. And obviously we don't know yet whether that'll be something that happens in the future. The program, the projects that were funded through the design challenge are sort of coming up to their annual reporting in October. So it'll be sort of a year on. But yeah, it's been great seeing it. And again, it's a, it's almost a, a case study that you can then say, well, what else could we do? Yeah. With this? yeah and it could be shared with other, with other government um, agencies as well. Mm. And so for people listening who are wondering what it is it, so basically you put out a funding process and invited people to apply. You had 47 teams apply and then were able to select eight of those and then they were supported over a year to basically go out and try a new idea and to co-design that with young women in their community and then they had some support um, in the background to help them with that. It was about um, increasing their physical activity levels. I mean, maybe that's like the long-term outcome, but the, you know, so that was, it was, it was sort of heading towards that idea, um, but also taking in a whole lot of other stuff, like doing things differently and talking to young women in co-design and all of those things. Yeah. And actually part of your outcome is what the participants learn, like the, the teams who take part just as much as the young women that they're working with. So, Oh, actually I've learned a whole lot about co-design and I've, I've learned that if I start things small, that can reduce the risk. And now I'm going to share that with people in my organization. And, and so you have a bit of a ripple effect. Often we think about um, like bottom up, you know, systems change is that uh, listening to the voice of young people and co-designing and um, those tools or those mindsets are things that, like you say, can ripple out. And then the more people that are doing that, the more likely we are to actually be designing programs and services and products that meet the needs of, you know, of young people or of your specific audience. And therefore, my hypothesis is you bring about greater change and impact. Mm. I'm thinking about that concept of a tipping point. And yeah. when an idea or a way of working suddenly hits that point where it goes from hardly anybody knowing about it to suddenly being in the mainstream. And I wonder where we're at on that, that tipping point scale. I think when you said before, I mean, like, it's hard, right? It sounds like an easy concept, um, mm. but it's not consultation. It's co-design. It's actually quite hard. It's even got its own challenges with young people when they have their, you know, their life experience and you're asking them, what do you want? And they only know what they know. You know, so if you're saying, well, what is it that you would like to participate in? So um, there's lots of challenges with it. So it takes time to learn ways of getting around all of those things or drawing out information from people and they're all um, skills and um, tools that take that take a while to learn you're not just suddenly going to be like oh i understand co-design and i'm going to go out and practice it tomorrow and it's all going to go swimmingly (laughs) yeah Yeah. Um, and i think some of the misleading resources around co-design where you look at these beautiful simple process charts that can be can be helpful to give you a kind of a guide as to where you're going, but it's it's never that simple in real life. You don't just go step one, empathize, step two, this, this, this. It, like it just doesn't quite happen like that. So, and you only really learn that once you get out there. Yeah, totally. And humans are really complex and 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 non-homogenous, right? So then suddenly you're in a room with a bunch of humans, and some of them don't talk. And Mm. some of them don't listen and some of them do other things. And some people have this opinion and other people have this. And like, it's the dynamics of working with people that is often Mm. the 
the hardest part. The concept of co-design is a relatively simple concept in itself. You say it's participatory design. Everybody works together to design the thing and everyone goes, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then when you go to do it and you haven't heard the voice of three people because they're too shy to speak mm-hmm. and you haven't actually learned the tools of how to draw out different people's ideas and how to make a safe environment and how to build a group like Kawa at the beginning or how we're going to work as a team. There's so many elements and things that you need to do well to make it a productive and you know meaningful experience for participants and so Mm -hmm. I think forget that there's all these bits around the outside that have to happen. (laughs) And one of those you mentioned group kawa that's a te reo maori word can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah it's something that we 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 also learned it like getting people to to create a joint agreement and and an example of that is getting people in the room to agree how they want to be together in the space. So what are, it could be like, what are things that are above the line or below the line? There's lots of different terms, but it's really about bringing people together and agreeing how you want to be and treat each other um, and sharing all of those. And I mean, guess the way to do it is to write them all down um, at shift. We often get young women to sign their names on the, on the document and then keep it, you know, in the classroom or in the space. So you can always refer back to it and be like, remember, we agreed that this is how we want to be together. Mm. So it's just um, a nice way, I guess, of, a of social bringing contract. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. A social contract. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's the lawyer and me coming out there. And I think the word kawa on a marae is like, that's kind of the agreement as to when you're on this marae, this is how a porphyry goes on this particular marae. Or yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that. Sometimes I find when you're in, in the middle of doing it and you're facilitating that, it feels kind of a little bit forced and a bit fluffy and you're like, oh, do we really need to do this? But then once you've done it and it's there and it's set, it actually ser- serves a really important purpose. Awesome. Maybe that's us getting to the end of our quarter, all, friend. Is there anything else you, wanna, you really wanted to talk about on the podcast? No, not at all. I just um, i am grateful for, I love talking. It's really nice to talk. It's nice talking to you too. I, I love questions and I always love uh, interviewing people and being interviewed because you, uh, people ask you things and you're not, you know, you don't, you're not prepared for them and you have to think like what, because what comes out is normally your truest thoughts or, you know, your mm. most authentic self. And I really love that. So yeah, anytime I get asked to contribute to something, I'm always like, yes, please. Cause it'll be challenging for me too. So thank you. I really enjoy chatting about things that I'm passionate about. Yeah, awesome. And if people have liked what they've heard, what's the best way to learn more about you, Fran, and your work? I don't know if there's any way to learn more about me. You can always get in contact. I love meeting new humans. And if you want to know more about Shift, we have a website. We're on social media at the Shift Foundation NZ, or our website is shiftnz.org. And there's a link to contact me there. My email address is shifterhood, of course it is, at gmail.com. Well, Fran, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I love your energy. Also, just the positive way that you can help people to think a bit differently. That idea of let's just put a boundary around some co-design and test it on a small scale and see how it works and learn from it and just build slowly. That's a really nice message. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. 
And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nā mihi mō te whakarongo.